Hey guys, welcome to Mace Way. Um, go ahead and grab some coffee. I think there's some iced coffee over there too. Um, and there's uh, some snacks. And then also uh, we've got a potluck tonight after church at the Jake's house, which we'll give you their address. I can't remember. It's a couple blocks away, but we'll, we'll get that for you. Y'all are all welcome. And uh, it'll be fun. Their house has a great porch to sit out on it. Sometimes it seems like a Mayus way operates on rock and roll time, so give people another minute or two to get going here. Our call to gather tonight is a song called Blessed uh, from a Lucinda Williams song that we did at Easter. And uh, it's kind of a reminder of the fact that uh, we looking to be a part of a kingdom that's kind of upside down, really, where the values are different than, I think, how uh, we normally get our values taught to us. And this song is sort of like a modern retelling of the Beatitudes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with that, where Jesus talked about people being blessed in ways that, when I read it, it's sometimes difficult to understand how that's blessing, but I think the song can help with that idea. But anyway, it's repetitive. The melody keeps repeating, so I think you'll pick it up if you haven't heard it. So join us on Blessed. We were blessed by the minister who practiced what he preached. We were blessed by the poor man who said that heaven was within reach. We were blessed by the girl selling roses who showed us how to live. We were blessed by the neglected child who knew how to forgive. We were blessed by the battered woman who didn't seek revenge. We were blessed by the warrior who didn't need to win. We were blessed by the blind man who could see for miles and miles. Blessed by the fighter who didn't fight for the prize. We were blessed by the mother who gave up the child. We were blessed by the soldier who gave up his life. We were blessed by the teacher who didn't have a degree. We were blessed by the prisoner who knew how to be free. Who turned water into wine We were blessed by the watchmaker Who gave up his time Blessed by the wounded man Who felt no pain We were blessed by the wayfaring stranger Who knew our name 
Way. Uh, I'm Travis. Um, if it's your first time here, Emmaus Way is a community of friends and co-conspirators in the way of Jesus. Uh, we're committed to seeing the ways that God is working redemptively in the world, um, particularly here in Durham and the Triangle area. We think it's our privilege to join in that work. Um, we worship with the whole of our lives throughout the week, but we also believe it's important to gather uh, here on Sundays particularly to see each other's faces, hear each other's voices, to interpret the scriptures together, as we'll do a little bit later, and to celebrate the communion table. Um, we also have a gathering of uh, various small groups throughout the week who um, share life together. Usually there's meals involved, that kind of thing. Um, the contact person for that is Elizabeth Eford, who I don't think is here this week, but talk to Wade or Dan or me or somebody, and we'll, we'll get you her information. Um, we also have a pub group that meets on Thursday nights. That's a gathering of... Uh, talking about theology, politics, philosophy, etc. Um, and Dan is the contact person for that. And that's at Bulma Caves here in Durham. Um, if it is your first week, this is a good week, because as we said, we have a potluck tonight at the Jakes' house, which is at 805 Watt Street. Thank you. Which is down, just go down Lamont here, and Watts is right there. Right into Watts, take it right. So close. Yeah. Um, so if you are a slacker like me and didn't bring anything, I think you're still welcome. <laughs> Everyone except you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's see, what else? Oh, uh, also coming up, and I didn't write down the dates, but the Wild Goose Festival is, I think, at the, toward the end of the month. 23rd. All right. Um, some people are volunteering for that, and if you want to do that, um, their website is wildgoosefest.org, and there's a place where you can sign up for volunteering. And um, I think just put Emmaus Way in there somewhere, and they'll, there'll be a group of us hopefully going to do that. Um, I don't see Jenny either, but she would be the contact person for that. Yeah, it's a multi-day concert. Um, uh, it will be speakers, it will be musicians, and people will be camping out at Shakori Hills. Uh, folks locally obviously don't have to camp out if you don't want to, but um, there will be a number of us that will be down there for several days. And lots of folks from over the Rhine who uh, we're going to do a song of theirs next, and, and a mon- number of other people that you would really like are going to be down there. So you can check out their website if you want to know more about it. Yeah. That should be good. Um... And I think we had a Durham Can, uh, I don't know what it's called, business meeting, something like that, Delegates Assembly. Anything to share about that? So we, I guess I'll talk for everybody. If anybody else wants to pipe in, go ahead. Um, 
we basically launched, um, well, we continued three issues that we were currently working on, one on education, one on the economy, um, and one on, um, uh, getting a uh, education, the economy, housing, housing, yeah, housing. Uh, we were continuing work on that, and then we initiated two uh, new topics today: uh, work on homelessness and um, senior citizens issues. Um, so uh, keep your heads up uh, for that kind of stuff. If you want to be involved, you can uh, talk to me, talk to Vanessa, um, Dave Klein. Uh, he's back here. Um, Durham Cans, a local grassroots political organization that works in Durham to solve the issues that uh, our communities, uh, a lot of congregations and folks in the neighborhoods here in Durham face. So if you're interested in that, uh, please talk to us. Great. Um, do have anything else going on? All right. Welcome oh, to the On the 17th, I meant to mention, um, we're going to do, uh, Crystal Wells and I and a, and a band called the Carolina Story, a group called Carolina Story, are going to do a concert in this room on Friday night, the 17th. And uh, so um, we're asking for a $7 donation at the door, but um, we'd love to have you guys. So uh, we had a really uh, good evening uh, last week at a house concert uh, at the Bainham House, and we'd love to have you for a repeat plus uh, Carolina story on uh, Friday night. So we'll put that on uh, the listserv and Facebook and stuff. But anyway, come out and join us. I um, want to take a look uh, at our next uh, couple songs, which are for preparation tonight for the conversation. And uh, the first, our, our lyrics have gotten a little jumbled in the in the bullets in the Earl camp, but it starts on the top right, All I Need Is Everything. I'll do that chorus for you so you can get a sense of the chorus. The song is called All I Need Is Everything. And um, anyway, it's one from um, our Right 7 project, but it's an Over the Rhine song that uh, I've liked for a long time. And I think... As we continue this conversation from the lectionary in First Peter, we're going to continue to look at this conversation of suffering, suffering for the gospel, and, and some of the complexities. It's a difficult topic, I think, for us. And um, I think trying to remember some of this story, as we did with our first song, Blessed, and some of the music tonight is going to really be music that's meant to help us live into this counter story of the gospel. And so... Um, anyway, uh, sing along with us on this one. Uh, if you know it, if you don't, um, feel free to join in or, or just listen. So the chorus goes, All I need is everything inside and outside. Feel new skin, all I need is that again cause all I need is everything inside outside feel new skin all I need is everything to feel the slip and the grip of grace again It's a matter of will Someone's circling Someone's moving A little lower than the angels It's got nothing to do with me The wind blows through the trees But if I look for it It won't come 
brightens up, my mind goes numb. There's nothing harder than learning how to receive. So calm down, be still. We've got plenty of time to kill. No handwriting on the wall. Just the voice that's in us all, and you're whispering to me. Time to get up off my hands and knees Cause if I beg for it, it won't come I've got nothing but table crumbs My hands are empty God, I've been naive When all I need is everything It's a matter of will Someone's circling Someone's moving Little lower than the angels His voice calling me to you Just barely coming through Still I clearly hear my name I've been fingering the flame Like tomorrow's martyr It's harder to believe of my tongue we can't run truth out of town only force it underground where the roots grow deeper in ways we can't conceive all I need is everything inside outside feel new skin
Many of you all know that I spent um, several weeks on the floor with a, a back injury and then took a while to try to get back to some sort of sense of normalcy. And if you guys have ever been through any kind of physical injury, and I know emotional energy, uh, um, sorry, injuries are even uh, a lot more difficult, I think, to, to overcome, but uh, a really strong sense of physical pain can just make life seem really strange. And I, I was thinking about... Um, why it was that when the physical pain was as strongly uh, uh, kind of affecting me as it was that I had trouble thinking of anything else. And I was thinking about this story um, that we're looking at tonight from the lectionary of suffering. And I think uh, it's interesting because the conversation has a different take um, on, on suffering than oftentimes I think we see in our culture where we're really good with pain relief, pain medication. Um, you know, at least that's a huge um, theme for us. And um, I think knowing people that have suffered because uh, they were fighting for something that mattered or trying to love where love was difficult or painful, that those stories are actually uh, encouraging to us at some level. And so anyway, this song is a song called Fistful of Pain and kind of asking, if all we're seeing is the fistful of pain, then what are we not seeing? Stay around like a mother You're no lover You hold us like a blanket And there's no warmth in you Just an awful heat that boils Sears like lightning Like a fire that never burns through We ask you for a reason as deaf as a stone Flatten us with cruel crushing weight That our drugs and our sleep And our endless distraction Can only dent and never really break Even time can erase Every hurt you know some things are too painful to forget But a fistful of pain can make us all Forget what might be in our other hand Forget what we could hold in our other us to bitter therapy when you back off you still take pokes and jacks leave us frightened and shrinking with our back against the road and the fear that we'll never feel whole again Even time can erase every hurt you know. 
Some things are too painful to forget And a fistful of pain can make us all Forget what might be in our other hand Forget what we could hold I think after uh, Travis did the announcements, we had a new member, or uh, I guess we don't call him member, but a new uh, kind of attendee of Emmaus Way come into uh, the gathering tonight, and Otto Andrew, is that correct? Yeah, was born this week. Monday. 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 Right. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations. So now, as is our custom here at Emmaus Way, before we gather around the text to converse, I want to invite you to stand up. Say hi to the person next to you, exchange the peace of Christ, uh, grab a snack if you haven't got one already, a cup of coffee, whatever, um, and I'll call you back in a few seconds, all right? So as you're coming back to your seat, um, 
I do want to remind those of you that came in that there is a potluck tonight after the service. We're going to just migrate our way down uh, Lamond and take a right on Watt Street, and we're going to head to 805 Watt Street, which is Phil and Susan Jake's house. Um, and they're hosting the potluck for us tonight. So even if you didn't bring anything with you, there will be plenty of food there. We invite you all to come. Please join us for that, um, if you would. So tonight in our conversation, um, we're going to engage a subject that off the bat, um, I want to hear from you about. Now this is a subject, I, I don't know if you have this tendency, but I have this tendency when I'm driving down the highway or whatever. When I pass a church, I tend to want to read the signs, right? Um, and reading church signs is kind of an enjoyable exercise for me because inevitably it elicits a certain type of reaction. You know I mean, it, it elicits a certain kind of response uh, depending on what's on the sign. And sometimes the signs are just funny. Uh, you're just wondering what in the world was the person thinking about that? So when you're reading these signs, like I've seen signs, I have a professor uh, at the Divinity School who has a real fondness for signs as well, and he has them posted outside of his door, and there's just some of the things you're wondering, what in the world were people thinking? And sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I want to be at that congregation on Sunday. Uh, but some of the signs that I've seen, and you can see these also too as you're driving down the highway and you see the kind of God signs that have been popping up, you know, like, meet me before the big game on Saturday. Saturday, God, you know, or uh, I haven't heard much from you lately, God, you know, or something like that, that elicit reactions in us. Uh, sometimes the signs around churches that, you know, kind of uh, there's no air conditioning in hell either elicit kind of like, whoa, types of reactions from us, uh, different things like that. Well, tonight we are going to engage a topic that I think uh, if, if we had to throw on a marquee out in front would probably elicit some reactions. Tonight we're going to talk about the subject of pain, right? So I want to get your initial reaction. If you were driving by the congregation, the church, and outside on the marquee it said, dealing with pain, what would your reaction be? Or would, you know, if the sign said steps to overcome pain or, or something in that regard, when you approach texts, when you approach texts in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, Old Testament, that deal with the issue of pain, what do you start thinking about? What happens? Or, or what's your first reaction? Drugs. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> drugs. Yes. Oh, get away from it, probably as quick as possible. Complaint. Complaint? And sometimes legitimate complaint, and sometimes I'm sick of hearing complaints. You know, maybe. I think if it's the kind of sign you're talking about that says the you know five steps to overcome pain in your life or whatever that my I'm like just suspicious <laughs> you know just real suspect of that kind of thing. Yeah. So automatically, you know, when you see the term suffering, automatically kind of hmm, really? Uh, are there really only five steps to overcoming suffering? Uh, I'm not sure about that. kind of ignored the fact or sort of tried to gloss over the fact that there was pain on this earth because they were only living to the heavenly realm, right? I'm going to ignore all the painful things that you deal with because it doesn't matter because we're going to heaven. Right. And so this sort of complete ignorance of what's actually happening around you. 
Right. Right. So, so half the time, pain can't even make the sign. Right. Because, you know, this is not something that really exists in the world uh, to, to focus on it is in some sense to deny a, a certain type of victory, maybe, or something. Any other reactions? There are different kinds of pain, uh, certainly. I mean, there are those that you have a hope that uh, there might be resolution to. And there are those that you are pretty convinced there is no resolution. It's chronic. Uh, it's going to stay around forever. So it's hard to imagine that you would hear some words and have the sense that, gee, I feel better. You know, my pain's gone. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons, and I'm going to kill Tim for leaving me in the lurch this week. Uh, one of the reasons it is so difficult to talk about pain is because pain or suffering is something that is just almost impossible to get it right. Right? I mean, think about how we address suffering in our culture. I mean, you know, on some sense, it comes off as being very superficial, right? That, you know, you get a bad picture by the paparazzi, and that's a certain form of suffering, you know, in the tabloids. Uh, and somehow suffering, to use that term in that regard, just doesn't seem to apply, right? Uh, and then again, you know, we see in our, in our world catastrophic things that take place, an earthquake, a tsunami, uh, these types of things. And when people talk about the suffering, that ter it, the term almost can't make sense out of what is really going on there. It's almost hard for us to comprehend that, wow... I don't even know how to make that intelligible to myself. You know, uh, you know, 200,000 people die in a tsunami. How do you even interpret that? How do you make sense of that? You know, I think in sometimes there's this kind of uh, nonchalance, avoid, uh, avoiding pain, act as if it doesn't exist. You know, you can just put your chin up and get through it and avoid it. And uh, you know, the only suffering that exists is the type of suffering that you, 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 you see or that you acknowledge. And then on the other side, you know, you, we've all met people who are kind of have a tendency to focus on suffering that, you know, this is the typical college student who sits out on the Harvard yard and debates the pain of existence, you know, thinking about how, oh, just, oh, the ennui of it all. I don't know. Uh, and, and I think we all have kind of sensed that, well, yeah, I'm not sure about that, you know. So I think in some sense, pain elicits differing reactions from us because in some ways it's something that it's very, very hard to have a unified conversation about. It's something that's very, very hard to even kind of make intelligible to one another a lot of times. Now, I say all that to say we're going to jump in regardless to the topic tonight. We are going to, uh, for better or for worse, jump into the topic of suffering and pain. Um, and we're going to engage a conversation around that. And we're going to do that by centering our conversation on a passage that pops up in 1 Peter. That is part of the lectionary readings for this Sunday. Now, you don't have that on your bulletin because we had, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Tim uh, had to run out of town kind of last minute uh, this week. Who, is our, uh, who was scheduled to preach, is another minister here at Emmaus Way, was scheduled to preach. He had to run out of town last minute because his wife, Mimi, who has a twin sister, um, her ex-husband had a massive heart attack and just died and died all of a sudden. So they were on their way to Ohio uh, to uh, kind of be with family, to be with uh, the kids and to be with um, people involved in that situation. So um, we didn't get the text printed in uh, the bulletin. Sorry for that. But Sarah is going to read our passage and it's not a very long passage. So if you would uh, just try to focus on what she's saying as she reads, because we're going to try and do some work in the text tonight. This is 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, and also 5, 6 to 11. 
Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the great, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. So, I don't know if you heard that or not, and I don't know if it kind of stuck with you or not. But there are really kind of four imperatives that Peter throws out to the congregation that's suffering here. This is a congregation that finds itself in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering. And there are really four imperatives or four commands that Peter throws out here. The first one is rejoice. The second one is be humble. The third one is be disciplined and alert. And the fourth one is resist. Now, I want to hear a little bit from you to, to, to hear you say, how do you think Peter did in his response to the suffering of the congregation here? If you were to throw out, if you were going to have a conversation with a friend, would these be the imperatives that you would choose? Would this be the way that you would go about it? Do you see any problems here? Do you see any good things here? What's your reaction to these imperatives that Peter throws out? Where's Wallow? What's that? Where's Wallow? Wallow, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> A little bit more time. Yeah, yeah where's deny? I mean, you know, we should have first deny your impairment. Right. <laughs> Just a flesh wound. <laughs> so, one, one of the things about, we can read this two ways, right? We can read this as like four steps. And if we do that, I think we'll do a lot of violence for that. Because you know, Peter knows about this stuff, right? Peter's not sitting in a comfortable office writing a sermon for other people who actually are in pain. He's not. He's, he's been there. So. so you must mean something a little different to how our four easy steps. Right. Yeah, there is, there is a lot of, there's a lot of possibility to go wrong with trying to interpret this passage. There is a lot of ways to move forward and to move into some crazy, uh, insane kind of trajectories and trying to interpret it. Um, but what, what, what also is your reaction to some of the ones that he does throw out? I mean, obviously they can go in bad ways. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to talk about it because it's not like he's writing in terms of abstract, just like suffering kind of, you know, you're, dog died or you're sick or whatever, you know, he's talking about specifically kind of a governmental type persecution. So it's hard to, t I think those four things are are applicable to a, not just kind of pain in general, not just like, you know, I forget what you're thinking, but like, you can't just apply them to like, oh, you have the flu, 
here's your four things, you know, it's more <laughs> thinking about what it means to be a community that's being kind of persecuted and then how resistance to evil, um, you know, rejoicing, believing, participating in the sufferings of Christ. So how can we, I don't know how, how we can use that to talk about pain in the abstract, but I think there's a step that needs to be taken to do that. I think this is really important. In a lot of ways in our culture, we find ourselves with always, to some extent, dealing with pain in the abstract. Because in this, these are just general observations I'm making here. But in some sense, generally, right, we're more aware of pain than probably people have been in, in the history of the world, possibly. The, you know, watch television. You will be convinced that you have pains that you did not know that you had. I was watching a commercial the other night for dry mouth syndrome. I, I didn't know it existed until I started feeling the symptoms, right? That, that, you know, whether it's knee cramping, I don't know what it is. But in some sense, we have in a culture that is in, in a, some ways more aware of suffering than we maybe have ever been, right? Through media outlets, through uh, studies, through all this kind of stuff. But we also at the same time live in a culture that distances, dis, uh, distances itself from pain probably more so than others have had the ability to do that. That we put our sick in hospitals, we put our mentally ill in institutions, we put our elderly in places where they can die, right? In some sense, there are a lot of us that can live our lives free and avoid any type of pain really coming into contact with us. So I think in some way we find ourselves in this weird situation where putting flesh on the bone or thinking about suffering in a specific context sometimes is hard for us to do because we're really, really aware of it, but we're also very, very sometimes far away from it as a culture. So what we're going to do tonight is attempt to break all the rules, mess everything up. You guys kick me out of the church and we're going to try and jump in to suffering itself. But in doing that, we have to recognize one thing. That we are, as Andrew and Travis pointed out, a million miles away from Peter writing this passage to the congregation. We have to understand that our situation is very different than the situation to which Peter's writing to and from which Peter's writing. You see, Peter aims his discussion here and these four imperatives at a very specific type of suffering. A very specific type of suffering, despite what you might hear in, in some forms of popular Christian culture, is not really occurring to the church. Now you may hear a lot about how Christians are suffering, there's this huge threat of secularization out there that is about to take over the world, uh, and that we as Christians are really under persecution by the people who are really ready to get rid of us all across the whole face of the planet, and especially in the United States. But I guarantee you that that is not the case, right? That is not happening, you can look at the sociological data, it's just not occurring. So the specific context of Peter, to some extent, remains very different from ours. You see, because Peter is writing to a congregation that finds itself alienated and persecuted by the local authorities that they were in contact. This may be hard to imagine, but when Christianity first emerged, when it was young, uh, it, it didn't have power. It wasn't on top. 
And in some sense, it was a completely different situation than we find ourselves now as the church in America, right? It wasn't really a conservative entity. It was in some sense an entity that challenged the social mores, that challenged the kind of uh, the overriding cultural ethos of Rome. You see, it's hard for us to imagine that because we live in such a different culture. But these early Christians found themselves convicted of things like atheism, of things like hating their fellow human, of being anti or asocial. These things that we just could not really even contemplate. That it, what seems to be going on here, you know, that they were, they were, there was this huge de- debate in uh, Rome that uh, the Christians were in some sense bringing back this crazy cult uh, that worshipped the god of Bacchus. And, and, and the god was one who engaged in drinking and revelry and there was a lot of sex going on. And people were confused as to why Christians were meeting. Because in Rome, Christians did not meet. I mean, uh, people did not meet male and female together. And so they were wondering, what in the world is going on with these small congregations where men and women are getting together? They seem like they're doing something crazy in there. It had this idea of a new cult that was challenging the family patriarchal structures, that was challenging the social structures of Rome itself. And these Christians that Peter's writing to were finding themselves alienated for that reason. They were finding themselves mocked as people who didn't participate enough in the culture, as people who weren't doing their Roman duty, who were in some sense being immoral. That's odd to think of that that being something that the Christians were challenged with. And so Peter here, however, writes to a very specific type of suffering, that it is this type of suffering that Peter has his finger on here, that it is a type of suffering that the congregation's finding itself under as a result of being faithful, as a result of simply gathering as church, as a result of simply being a collective entity that followed Christ and worshiped Christ. That in some sense, there's a complete reversal from where we find ourselves now. Now, I don't want I don't want to downplay anybody who might have had some family struggles growing up and being Christian and that being an issue in your family. But we certainly don't find ourselves in a culture where we're shunned because of our Christian faith. We certainly don't find ourselves for the most part without families or families that are kicking us out because we decided to pursue Christianity. It's just not a cultural phenomenon for us. So in some sense, we're going to have to work extremely hard to enter into this passage. We're going to have to allow ourselves a little bit of freedom in trying to interpret it into our context. That in some sense, we're going to have to work if we're going to talk about suffering from this passage to place it within our own context and how it looks for us following Christ. So I want to do that by taking a little bit of preacherly freedom, right? Now, and this is going to be difficult because, as I said from the get-go, talking about pain is absolutely something that is very difficult to do. And as we run back through, I'm going to try to reinterpret for us these four imperatives into our context. But remember, as I do that, that in some sense, for each and every single one of you, all of us would need our own individual sermon on pain and suffering. 
that some of the way that we're going to work through this, part of it's not going to really be applicable to you and part of it might be. And then you're going to have to shift it around a little bit and some of it might be applicable and other parts not be for some of the others of you. Because in some sense, when dealing with this topic, we all have our individual experiences that we bring to the table. We all have our individual stories of pain that we've gone through, pain that we're facing, uh, stories of people that we know that have had pain. And so as we move through that in this passage, or as I move through these imperatives, keep in mind that I'm not making a statement saying that all of you have to do these types of things. What we're going to try and do is read from Peter to say, here are some ways in which our church in this context might take these imperatives and engage pain, right? We're going to do that by trying to attempt. You've heard that proverb, when you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? We're going to try to do that without running around going, bam, bam, bam. This is the solution. This is the solution. But trying to keep all four of these in a delicate balance where some of them will hit home for you and some of them probably won't. Some of them you might feel are egregious uh, violations of what you've experienced and what you need to hear. And some of them might be actually just what you need to hear. So first, rejoice. Now, as I was reflecting on this passage and on this imperative to rejoice, translating it into our culture, I think what Peter is trying to point us to here is that the type of rejoicing he's calling us to is not a, a naive rejoicing as if suffering does not exist. It's not a Joel Osteen. It's not a kind of pick your head up, look at the bright side of the situation, get through it, get over it, and it will make itself better. But instead, rejoicing here is a rejoicing that turns itself toward suffering. That is a rejoicing that knows how to take joy while facing and entering into suffering itself. Because the rejoicing that is going on here is the recognition that the suffering that we face in our lives, whatever that might be, does not have the last word. That that suffering will not be the ultimate story that is the conclusion of what is going on. To this extent, I think when Peter says rejoice, Peter is pointing the congregation to a larger vision of what God is doing in the world. That Peter is saying you're aliens and you're persecuted now. You're facing suffering. Don't be surprised about that. You're facing it. But God is at work in a larger way. And one of the markers is that you'll be participants and sufferers and sufferers along the way. So rejoice. Two, humble. This one gave me, I don't know what to do with this half the time. I don't think Peter is calling us here to a type of humility that is groveling, uh, that is in some sense trying to deny human existence, that is saying, oh, I'm worthless, I'm worthless, I don't deserve anything. I think what Peter is pointing us to here and pointing the congregation, uh, probably his congregation, but then also might, what might be translated into our congregation, 
is to say, avoid the games of comparison that we often play. That in some sense, the call to being humble here is the recognition that within your context, even within the things that you're facing, a call has been placed upon you. That within that specific location, a task has been given, a task to continue to minister in that suffering and through that suffering. To avoid the types of looking around and saying, well, man, that person seems to have it great. And why can't I have it that way? Or to the contrary, saying, wow, my life is great because that person has really got crapped on lately. But in some sense, this humbleness is the ability to embrace one's call where one is. To embrace the fact that God has given us a task where we are. Being humble is in some sense accepting that task to be invited into God's mission in the world. Not to solve it all, but also not to ignore it. Number three, to be disciplined and alert. Now, I think this is particularly a challenge to those of us who have experienced life that's been pretty lucky. You know, you got pregnant when you wanted to. The person, the idiot you married when you were 18 actually turned out to be a pretty decent person, right? Uh, the house you bought didn't have any asbestos in it, right? <laughs> you know, the, uh, uh, you didn't run into any family problems along the way. That in some sense, this is a call to those people who have in some sense been able to avoid suffering in our culture throughout their whole lives. It's a call to say, keep awake. It's a call to say, be alert to the fact that there are many amongst us whose stories are very different from yours. There's a call to a certain discipline there. A call to a discipline to hear those stories, to be near those stories of pain. Not to feel guilty in the sense because things have just happened for you like that. It's not a sense to kind of wallow in guilt. But it is in, in some way a call to alertness to recognize that as a church family, as a church living in the world, that there are stories of suffering that if we will be awake, we come in contact with every day. And that to some extent, our discipline and our alertness is to be attentive to those, to listen to those stories, to hear those stories and to be present for them. So to those of us who have found ourselves rather lucky in life, to be alert, to be attentive, and to be present. Lastly, number four, to resist. I kind of like this one. Now I think, however, that this is pretty much dedicated to us culturally. And as I said, this is going to be a general thing. But I think given the fact that we as Christians in the U.S. and the U.S. in general have enjoyed a certain sense of affluence, that the call to resist here for us, and I'm taking preacherly freedom, is a call to resist the narrative that we have what we have because we deserve it. 
and because we worked our tails off to get it. And because to some extent we made the good choices while other people made the bad choices. That the call to resist here is the call to resist that narrative being the narrative that defines who we are. It's a call to resist the type of cultural affluence that may seem to try to write pain out of what's happening in the world. That it may not be something we really have to deal with. That we can avoid it either around the world or even here in Durham. That the call to resist, the imperative to resist, is to continue to remind one another that that cultural affluence is not because that's what we deserve, but in some sense, we have to continue to resist it as defining who we are. To resist overly interpreting our lives that way. Okay, so now I've given it a shot. Here's what I want to throw back on you for a few minutes. Where have I missed it? What have I missed? What's something that I've missed here? And trying to, to lay out these four imperatives into our life, taking it from Peter's context and laying it into our lives. What have I missed? What have I left out here? Maybe where have I gotten it right? <clears throat> What's missing? Maybe in, in general, I think that a lot of these people miss the idea that these commands are a gift to us and like to cast your anxiety on God. Mm -hmm. It's not like a command, like in the sense that you're not casting your anxiety on God, you're doing a bad job, <laughs> you know, so things are even worse. But it is a, a burden that he's trying to remove to us, not a new set of rules that he's trying to impose on us to make things worse if we're not doing it. Right, right. Yeah, so maybe even my terminology of an imperative is a bad terminology. Maybe it should be more like an invitation. Right? There's a difference between giving a command and, and giving an invitation. So maybe an invitation is a better way uh, of thinking about them. Maybe also to some degree it's about perspective building as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, certainly not all pain <laughs> is perspective building. But, um, but I think sometimes when, when you're humbled by it or when you are resisting it, I think there can be perspective in that, in terms of how how you were then able to have self-control and how you were able to weather the storm and walk through what you've got to walk through. You know, um, having that perspective. Also, I think our community can help us with that as well. Um, you know, helping us see the perspective when when we can't because it's so right here in our face. Right. And there's a huge difference, I think, too, between kind of because we get this crazy superficial uh, attempt in our culture, especially from preachers and especially in Christian culture a lot to kind of do an apologetic against pain. Right. So we're going to tell you, you know, here's definitively what pain means in the world and why it's here. Right. And that always seems to me like a bad idea. But we can also then to some extent talk about it as a, uh, it does teach us. There are things that we learn from pain and from engaging with people who are in pain. That it does give us perspective. Yeah, something else that it seems this passage does is um, it, it sort of goes against our tendency to pathologize pain and to, to see it as a violation of our normalcy, which is no pain. And, and in some ways it's establishing no pain is a part of normal existence. It's not a violation of 
happiness and peace and all these things. It coexists right. with these things and can create these things, right. in fact. Right. And you sort of hinted at that a couple yeah. of things you said. But I yeah, I think in some sense the ability to kind of, I mean, we inhabit a world where, you know, some people actually kind of make it pretty far without experiencing pain. That's kind of shocking. And I think it would have been shocking to the writer here who says, don't be surprised, right? You know, the pain is something that you will encounter. Andrew? Oh, sorry. I think the whole <clears throat> passage, that invitations or imperatives are couched in the context of relationship. Firstly, this relationship to Jesus and his pain, that immediately like, okay, so there's somebody in here in this with me or with us as a community. And that's one of the things that whatever your experience of pain, it doesn't take away pain, but it, does, it changes your experience of it as having somebody somehow be in it with you, whether they're experiencing the pain or not, or whether they're just kind of there for you. Um, you, you relationship changes it. And then, you know, cost anxieties on Jesus. So, I think all of these things, well, what are you rejoicing? Again, like, it doesn't kind of make, it wouldn't make sense if you were a bunch of actual atheists, as opposed to people accused of being atheists, um, to say, well, well, rejoice if there's pain. Well, why? There's only a reason for rejoicing because of the relationship with Jesus. Right. And so, yeah, so I think they're all sort of, they all have significance in relationship with Jesus. And without that relationship, you know, you, you, we can't like cut out the piece right. about Jesus and like turn this into a secular because it's not going to make sense. Yeah, in some sense, I think one of the things you're saying is that in our culture, there's absolutely sometimes nothing more. Uh, Something, nothing more in our culture that contributes to making us lonely than having pain. That the experience of pain in our culture tends to be, I think, an extremely lonely one. Um, and now I think in Christianity we have to struggle to, f to flip that. I mean, you know, we can look at, uh, you can think of Julian of Norwich in the 13th century when the bubonic plague is ravaging Europe. It's going through England. And her challenge to the church is... Priests, stop running away. People are dying without their last rites. If they die without last rites, their thought was that they could not inherit salvation. Right? So the priests have to go in and minister to people who are in plague, even bearing the, uh, the realization that they very well might get the plague from doing that. So in some sense, Christian narrative has to re-understand pain. That pain, in some sense, we have to refuse or maybe resist the isolation of pain and, and find ways to enter into that with people. Yeah. I think like two things stand out to me. One is just the basic thing in, in this passage where it's, it's not an issue of, of avoiding suffering. It's, it's a question of how you will suffer. Because um, in some sense, being in Christ, it seems, and sharing Christ's suffering, that's it's almost a given. Um, if you're going to be in that narrative versus the Roman narrative, there are more Romans, you're, you're going to suffer within that. And this deals so much with how you suffer, which I think is interesting. And the second thing that, you know, in an affluent context like this, and, and I don't want to suggest that we just go looking for trouble, because you don't go looking for trouble for trouble's sake. You know, you know this trouble will find you. But sometimes you have to ask yourself, like, if we follow Travis's line about the, the political side of, of this, I think it's just as important to ask why you're not suffering. Um, because you can certainly look at, I was reading about some of the house churches in China this week that are just going through pure hell, have been for a long time. 
you can look at Southeast Asia, you can look at context in Africa where people are suffering in a lot of very real ways because of the larger politics they find themselves in. And it's, it's always an interesting question for us to ask, well, if we're not suffering, why? Um, it's almost odd that we're not. I mean, if, if Christ and the way of Christ is so countercultural, and I would argue it's even countercultural in, in America, why, why are we not suffering? Yeah, I think that in some sense we have to... Well, I mean, it can sound masochistic, right? It can sound like, oh, wow, we really love pain. The more pain, the better. The, you know, I mean, like, uh, but I think in some sense the question kind of continues to exist for us as Christians, as those that follow the way of a crucified Messiah, that something got Jesus crucified, right? Something happened there, right? People don't typically run around the world just killing people just for the sake of it, right? And a political entities don't do that either, for the most part. So, so what is it? What is it was the, about the life of Christ that got that type of response? And I think we have to continue to ask our question, ask ourselves that question, without kind of falling into a sadism of of what is it that Christ was doing that if we're not suffering that we might be missing, right? I don't think we have to grovel in guilt about that, but we might ask well, it. I, I think to to that end, I may... Maybe, maybe it's, it's that, that we're actually the, the persecutors here. Mm. I, I, I feel like if, if, if we're not experiencing it, mm. um, and, and, and I, uh, particularly in, in, in this kind of affluent world that, that, that we live in, um, it's, it's, it's one thing to just say, well, you know, it does not apply. But it's, it's another question to say, well, like, m maybe I'm responsible. Mm. Uh, Maybe there's something for me to own here where, where there is somebody that is experiencing pain because of the choices that I'm making, because of the way I live my life or whatever. Yeah, and I think that can take place on various different levels. We're talking about family relationships. We're talking about you know, economic decisions. We're talking about uh, where we live in society, who we interact with. Like various, even, you know, there are many different levels to that uh, challenge for us. And I think in some sense that is the kind of continual call for uh, for us to, to, to resist and think about or m remain alert to where things we might un not even knowingly be, uh, do engage in types of suffering. Okay, so, oh, sorry, Robert. Yeah. Um, Peter is the man who was not one of the disciples. He's the man who was not with them. And he's also the man who said, I never knew him, Jesus, uh, before hearing a comfort. He had a long time to think about that before Jesus came back to him and asked him to feed his sheep. And he also was able to contrast his own behavior with what Jesus had told him about being the rock upon which his church would be built. So I think Peter had a phenomenal, uh, you know, low time in his life and comes back after seeing what ended up happening and understanding it and then saying, gee, you know, here I was so low in life and yet such a great thing has now come of all of this. Obviously, the story is much bigger than I can understand and I'm ready to help people with where they are. Like so many other of us here tonight have said, um, pain and suffering, as you said too, is not the final word. 
And I think it's a great transition to kind of where I want to try to leave us tonight. Because in some sense, there's always the problem with preaching of like four mini sermons in a sermon that everybody's sitting there going, what just happened? What you might be saying that anyways, but what in the world did we talk about tonight? Where did we go? So I'm going to try to kind of pull it all together. I'm going to try to pull it all together for us, but not in a way that says, okay, write these down. When you go home, here are the four steps that next time you encounter pain, or this is some superficial kind of uh, way of facing it. That I think in some sense, the focus of Peter's whole letter is that the congregation will come to understand itself and its identity as being in Christ. That one of the things I think we live in a culture where identities are very fluid, where identities in some sense are in crisis, that very few of us, I mean, you know, you might have had this experience, right? You went to, uh, you grew up somewhere, you moved somewhere to go to school or you moved somewhere for a job and you reinvented yourself a little bit, right? All those things you didn't want to tell everybody about your family back home, you kind of tweaked them a little bit and you changed who you were in this new context. Uh, that we live in a culture where, to some extent, we can be very fluid with our identities. But I think also we find ourselves in a culture as a result where we're in a bit of identity crisis. That we're in an, a, a crisis of who are we and how do we understand ourselves in the world. That to some extent what Peter is doing here by identifying, helping the church identify itself with Christ is he's giving them a map or a purpose on which to lay themselves, on which to think through their suffering. I was watching a documentary this week on World War II, and they were interviewing some vets uh, from, I guess it was about 10 years ago, and they were talking about World War II, and they were talking about, we just, we don't know why it all occurred. It doesn't seem like we've We've learned anything, that for all the suffering, all the catastrophic uh, events that occurred, all the pain, that it doesn't look like we learned anything. And I think for some, to some extent, we find ourselves in a culture that is really battling with a deep question of meaninglessness. That we find ourselves facing not only pain, but maybe in a worse way, pain in a world where it just doesn't even have meaning anymore. That the idea of pain doesn't have any type of overarching way that it fits into a larger purpose of things. As you know, or you may not know, this is Ascension Sunday in the church calendar. This is the Sunday where Christ returns to God the Father. And in so doing, reunites humanity to God completely. I think what we find here... From Peter's writing about identifying ourselves with Christ on Ascension Sunday is that we find that the suffering we encounter, the, the pain that we face, has been taken up into the very life of God. That the map on which we have to place our lives and the suffering that we encounter, it's not to be explained, but it has been embraced in a larger story that God is writing. And that you and I, through identifying with Christ, are called to enter into that, called to minister in that, called to walk the way of suffering with others in order to continue God's work. That in some sense, this is a passage of vindication, but it's an odd vindication. It's a reversal of vindication. It's a vindication of redemption, 
Not a, venge- not a, a, a vindication of revenge. A vindication here where God's work in the world has taken suffering up into God. And that God, in some way, will be making all things new, even though we can't understand it. So rejoice, be humble, be disciplined and alert. Resist. Not because those are great tactics, not because they're going to work, not because they're going to rid the world of suffering, but because your identity is in Christ. And that gives us great purpose. In a moment now, I'm going to invite us to the table. And in going to the table, working out of this discussion tonight, uh, I was in wrestling with this, I, was gonna, I had no idea what was going to come out of what you were going to say. I mean, I know some of you are going through deep pain. Some of you are, uh, have friends that are going through pain. Uh, I had no idea that was what was going to come out. But I think what we, we find here and is in some sense in Christianity a refusal to make suffering superficial. A refusal to kind of negate it, but to interact with it. After all, we're going to go to a table that celebrates the broken and bloodied body of what we call our Lord, or the person that we call our Lord. In doing that, we're going to take bread and wine into our body, engaging in the suffering of Christ. As we do that, we're going to identify ourselves with that suffering person. But in doing that, we're also going to identify ourselves with the larger story that God is writing in the world. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come. Uh, We usually gather around the table, breaking bread for one another, handing it to one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you. And we pour wine or juice for one another, saying, the blood of Christ shed for you. We do that as a continual practice in recognition that our identities are bound to Christ. They're found in Christ. And that through and with Christ, we have been given the challenge as a church to engage in the pain of the world and to walk in it and with those who are in it, aimed toward God's larger story. I invite you now to the table. Come, eat the body and blood of Christ, celebrate the grace of God, that there is a larger story that does not deny pain, but enters into it. And in some way, will make all things well. Amen. As you uh, go through the table after you take the elements, uh, we're going to invite you back to the circle here. Uh, We're going to finish up with some singing before we head over to the potluck uh, to continue this kind of discussion of pain and Uh, identifying with Christ. So after you get done with communion, if you'd make your way back into the circle, we're going to sing uh, a few songs together in conclusion. Thanks, Dan. First song we're going to do, the lyrics have gotten kind of messed up, so I'll I'll teach you guys the chorus of this one. um, uh, But feel free to just listen. It's a song called Rain, and I think in this song, rain is the metaphor for the new kingdom, for the uh, work that God's going to do to 
uh, make things new. And then if you've ever been through a rain when you really needed it after a really long dry spell, that cleansing and that uh, newness is, I think, what the focus is here. And the chorus goes, uh, Rain erasing shame and blame, carrying the pain away. Rain erasing shame and blame, carrying the pain away. So that's it, rain erasing shame and blame, carrying the pain away. Rain erasing shame and blame, carrying the pain away. Rain erasing shame and blame, carrying the pain away. It's me It's been a long time Since we've talked Really talked Shared our lives together We left our home Of broken dreams Hopes not fully realized Lost an empty And familiar sight History pulls us together Comes between us even more Different paths under an ashen sky We both heard the distant thunder Rumbling and rolling Never close enough for any rain But I see rain racing shame and blame Carrying the pain away Rain racing shame and blame You never know where it will go and where it will take you, where it's gonna end. The loving ties that bound us, held us, supported us, then faded like a dream. Couldn't make it to the dawn, yeah. I don't blame you, but it hurts. All the years between us have settled like the stiffness. Of an aching need I'm asking your forgiveness Praying that the tempest will all fade Into the showers of a healing rain When I see rain racing shame and blame Carrying the pain away Rain racing shame and blame Carrying the pain away Shame and blame, carrying the pain away. Pain erasing, shame and blame, carrying the pain away. I need a rainy day.
Been a long time since we've talked, really talked Shared anything together And we both heard the distant thunder Rumbling and rolling, never close enough For any rain, but I, I feel the wind I'm praying for a watershed I know the clouds are coming I'll be dancing in the rain got some of the lyrics uh, on the bottom right um, of this next song, but um, this is one called Love of Midnight. We've done it, but it's been a little bit of a while ago. This is um, a song by Peter Himmelman, and he's uh, an Orthodox Jew, but one of the things I love about his writing is that um, as he's looking at the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah, all the things will be different, that we believe in Jesus Christ, then, you know, this song is actually amazingly apropos to what we think about in terms of this new kingdom. So the love of midnight is not only about love, but it's that love that will change everything. So listen to Love of Midnight. When justice and mercy are fused into one, when the knots of frustration are finally undone, when hatred and shame have vanished from sight, I will love you with the love of midnight When the victim shall stand and the aggressor shall fall When hunger and fear are unknown to us all When men are divided by black or by white I will love you with the love of midnight Stand at the pinpoint between darkness and light Where the truth is made so plain to see We will witness the enemies, the opposites unite As our captive spirits run free The bearers of injustice are making amends When the ghosts of all sinners will finally be cleansed when we throw down our guns, refusing to fight, I will love you with the love of midnight. When pride and fortune cease to be real, 
When the cold at heart can suddenly feel When all wars are run by reason Not my, I will love you with the love of midnight Midnight We will stand at the threshold bisecting the worlds As if at the top of some hill out of our blindness we shall have been hurled Not driven by fear but by will of you Better than any desire When the scoffings of cynics is silenced at last When the eons of pain and suffering have passed When the angels of mercy have taken to flight I will love you with Gonna come, gonna, gonna walk, gonna run When you're gonna come, I'm gonna walk, I'm gonna run When the nations see that they're immeasurably small Compared to the one who created us all When the dying of the dark meets the waking of the light I will love you with the love of midnight Midnight Stand at the river where silence collides With countless generations of screams Where a mysterious name that never divides Gives life to our blood and our dreams When the veils and the shadows are taken away We will witness the birth of the Immaculate Day to stand in the flash between darkness and light Is to love you with the love of midnight Yeah, midnight I'm so tired of waiting for it So tired of waiting for it I'm so tired Gonna love you like midnight Love you like midnight Love you like midnight When you gonna come, gonna, gonna walk, I'm gonna run When you gonna come, I'm gonna walk, gonna run When you gonna come, gonna, gonna walk, gonna run Our last song tonight, I don't think we have the lyrics printed there, but I, I hope you, uh, many of you know it. So come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And I wanted to do this as sort of coming full circle from Advent. I think many times uh, we, we think of this song as purely a Christmas song. And uh, I wanted to do this song because I think this is our continued prayer, as it says at the end of the Lord's Prayer, that kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we know that Jesus has come, but we're looking for him to come again. And also we need him to be part of our lives. So sing this invitation. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. 
that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, 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 Emmanuel shall come to thee. again. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in Come to thee, O Israel. 
Dr. Holly and for Sarah for playing with us tonight. Um, if you get a chance throughout the week, one of the reasons why we put the podcast up is because Wade and the team of musicians that play put a lot of work into thinking of how what we do musically is a liturgy for us as a people, a work of, uh, for us as a people. If you were to go back and listen through the songs that Wade put together for this week, they continue to juggle that these kind of four or five or six kind of ideas around suffering all at the same time. And I think if you listen to them as a liturgy, it will walk you through exactly what we tried to talk about tonight. Uh, and you can continue to do that through the week and even uh, for several weeks um, in the future. So thank you all for being here with us. Um, a reminder once again that we're heading out of here down to a potluck at the Jake's house, which is right out of Le Mans, right down Le Mans, take a right on Watch Street. It's about four to five blocks, something like that, down right across the street from Watch Street Baptist Church. Um, we hope you can join us. Uh, remember as you go out, uh, I'm going to pray for us in a second so when we get there that, um, you know, we can just jump into the eating, which is what I like to do. So, um, <laughs> Uh, but remember as you go out that engaging in uh, the story that we found in First Peter here tonight in this letter to this congregation, we find uh, a kind of notion of vindication, but a vindication that is written through the lens of redemption, one that invites us and gives us the possibility of entering into the stories that we encounter, into pain and to suffering, not in order to kind of bind them up and send people on their way, but in order to, to live in those, recognizing that God does that very thing for us and with us. Let's pray now and we'll head out. God, we do thank you for the chance to gather again uh, for a week uh, to continue to minister um, in our community and to the people that we encounter. Lord, we ask now that you would bless this food to our bodies. Uh, thank you for the hands that have prepared it for those that have grown it, for those that have worked to put it where it is now, even though we may never see that. Lord, we ask that we would be better stewards in our world, in our city, uh, of attending to and paying attention to where things come from and how they get to be in front of us. God, make us better stewards of those things. Make us better uh, readers of um, the things that we engage such that we Pay attention to the people who put them there and the stories that they have. Bless it now to our bodies and our bodies to your continual service this week. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Go in peace.